This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Is gender a social construct? Oh God, I make faces when people ask me questions about gender because I don't know what you mean by gender. <laughs> like I would say most people just mean sex and that's definitely not a social construct. And then some theorists mean, um, you know, the social expectations that differ for men and women. And, you know, that's partly a social construct, but it partly follows from the fact that there are two sexes and the sexes have got different roles in reproduction just automatically. Like, I don't think it's a social construct that women are more interested in babies. Like, we're the ones who grow them. Mm. But you could call that gender. And then there's this more recent idea of gender identity, which is the notion that each of us has uh, an innate characteristic that tells us whether we're men or women or non-binary or something else. And that's not just a social construct. It's nonsense. There is no such thing. This is an, an invention, a relatively recent invention. Most of us just know that we're men or women, and there's a few people who are confused about that, and there's lots of different reasons they might be. But it's not like we each come with a module in us that's like our gender identity. When we speak about gender and sex, what are we speaking about? No, mostly we're just talking about the same thing. Mostly people don't want to use the word sex, either because they think it's rude or because it's ambiguous in the sentence. So when somebody says everybody has a sex, you might hear them saying everyone has sex. Or like if you put a form out that says sex and you offer male and female, people will often just write yes, please, or some annoying thing like that. So people say gender instead. But mostly people just mean sex. They mean the physical, biological characteristic that is because we're mammals, some of us about half are female and about half of us are male. And that's entirely to do with our biology and to do with reproductive roles. The definition of sex is a reproductive role definition. So that's what most people mean. They just mean sex. Essentially chromosomes. Sort of essentially chromosomes. I mean, I listened to an entire and fascinating talk on what sex means and why it's binary at the weekend by Colin Wright. I was at a conference in Denver about women in sport. And it, the, sex, is mo sex is more important and more basic than chromosomes. There existed sex before there were XY chromosomes turning adults, in, you know, humans into male and female. Like some, in some animals, sex is determined by the temperature at which the egg was incubated or animals can change sex or like earthworms have parts that are both sexes. Sexes are reproductive roles. They're not chromosomes, although in humans, they're determined by chromosomes. Sexes are just reproductive roles. The males make the little gametes and the females make the big gametes. It's that simple. Uh, of course, you're not speaking about the extremes. Uh, there are those, what, what is the phrase? Hermaphrodites. These, these are, are exceptions no, to the rule. No, there are no hermaphroditic humans. Mammals have no oh. hermaphrodites. There has never been a hermaphroditic human that has been uh, uh, confirmed by science. It's not possible because the, the bits of, you know, when you're a tiny embryo, when you're just two or three weeks past conception, the, the tissues that turn into the testes, the penis, the male organs are the same tissues as turn into the female organs. So something can go wrong in that process, but what you can never end up with is a complete set of both because it's the same stuff that turns into both of them. There are people who have what are called differences of sex development or disorders of sex development. But mostly those people are very clearly either male or female, but their sex organs have not developed normally. Or very occasionally their sex organs are somewhat ambiguous and you're going to have to investigate further to see what sex they are. But those people are never hermaphrodites. There is no such thing among mammals. Earthworms are hermaphrodites, but we're not earthworms. <laughs> Helen, I remember when I was... Uh growing up in the 80s and 90s, I didn't hear terms like transgender 
and I didn't hear conversations about boys becoming girls and vice versa. I mean, it basically didn't exist. You know, you can look at Google and I, I think it was around 2015 that trans, transgender and so on really start to take off as search terms. I mean, I'm older than you. I was I was a teenager in the 1980s. Uh, I was born in 1968. And, um, you know, I literally never heard such things as a teenager. I think probably as a young adult, I might have, I don't think I ever watched, but I might have seen that there was a TV program about somebody called a transsexual. And I don't think I ever thought about it. But what we were told then was that there were a tiny, 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 tiny number of people, like maybe, you know, a few hundred in a country the size of the UK who were so unhappy with the sex that they were that you could do some unspecified surgeries to try and make them feel more comfortable. And that was the extent of it, really. Um, I mean, basically, the reason I wrote the book is because, like, where the hell did this come from? Like, that was the question I was asking myself, and it was the question I wanted to answer readers. Like, why the hell is trans bloody everywhere suddenly? And, I mean, we don't have time for me to read you my book, and I do recommend your, reader, your, your viewers read the book because I have a lot to say about where it came from. But if we were to pick out a few things... I mean, one of them is just that the same bodies that put so much work into getting gay rights and then same-sex marriage uh, had nothing to do when they got that. And it's not usual for well-known charities that are well-funded and have a significant overhead and staff and where their heads go on to get things like um, peerages to just close up shop and say we're not needed anymore. And so they were looking for their next cause and their next cause they decided was gender self-identification, meaning the policy of allowing people to overwrite their sex as recorded at birth with what they feel like they are. I mean, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with gay rights. In fact, it's inimical to gay rights, but anyway, that's what they did. And then I think you'd have to say developments in academia as well. Like loads more people go to university now, loads more of them do these courses like gender studies and queer theory and whatever. And those courses grew out of a sort of postmodern tradition, a corrupted postmodern tra tradition, I should say, which sees everything as self-defined, everything is about identity, you know, it's your own truth, that, you know, nobody else has the right to define you, that language creates reality rather than describes it and so on. So, you know, there's all these streams that came together. Oh, and the internet, by the way, where kids like inventing gender identities and sharing them on what used to be on Tumblr and now it's on TikTok. So all these things kind of came together and now suddenly we have what you might call the transgender moment. I'm still confused as to how it's gained so much traction and more concerningly acceptance it's got that feeling of a kind of first world problem doesn't it i mean i was talking to richard dawkins the other day which obviously excites me enormously because the man is an absolute intellectual hero of mine and so it was a dream come true to meet him and he asked some of the same questions and i said to him um you know as as an evolutionary theorist when somebody says to you, how did the giraffe come to be? Or how did the platypus come to be? There's two very different sorts of answers you can give, but both of them are about evolution. So one of them is that you do what he did in one of his books, which was you go back through evolution and you say, you know, what led to the platypus? And you might be able, if there's enough of a record, to say what caused some of the major evolutionary shifts in that, in that, um, you know, history going back to the amoeba and, you know, single sex organism, uh, single cell organisms. Or you could just say, well, look, this is how evolution works. Mad things turn up. What you can say is uh, an evolutionary process in which there were evolutionary pressures, many, many of them, thousands, millions over time happened. And at the end of it, this is the thing that survived. 
So I think you could give both those answers to, you know, why transgender now? Like, it's an obviously crazy and counterfactual belief system. I mean, honestly, it should just take about two, two, two sentences to just debunk it, and then the rest of us, could move, we could all just move on. But somehow, it, you know, it, it arrived at just the right moment for the internet. It arrived at just the right moment for these lobby groups. It arrived at just the right moment, you know, in a bunch of ways. And, and a series of implausible events meant that here it is. And you can try and say, and I do in the book, what some of those implausible events might be. Or you can just say, well, you know, crazy ideas arise all the time. And mostly they just die without a trace, like they have a few believers and then they die. And this is the one that somehow, through a series of, in my opinion, unfortunate events, has come to conquer the world. And now it's here, and so people hear it and they think it's true, because they're told it is. So it's, 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 it's reached escape velocity. Mm. The book you're referring to is called Trance When Reality, uh, sorry, When Ideology Meets Reality. That's right. And I think it's been reissued relatively recently. So I don't know, um, depending on where people are, uh, the, the latest edition of it is called Transgender Identity and the New Battle for Women's Rights. But it's the same book. I've only well, written one book. <laughs> well, there's the, the segue I was, I was waiting for, because I'm wondering if this whole transgenderism narrative has negatively impacted women and by extension women's rights. I mean, I would argue, yes, and it's the reason that many women come into fighting transgender ideology. And um, I mean, you know, it is just a base fact that there are two sexes and that the sexes have somewhat different vulnerabilities and strengths. I mean, women have the strength that we can make a new life and no man has ever been able to do that. On the other hand, we're physically weaker and we can be raped. So that means that if you want women and men all to flourish, all to have a fulfilling existence, all to be able to take part in public life, you need to have somewhat different policies for each of them. And because we've historically arranged everything for men and kept women in the home, it's women who need special consideration. Like, you know, the world is set up for men and it's still set up for men. So you have to think like, what do you need to do to make sure that women can be included? And largely that's about dealing with the vulnerability to rape and the need to be pregnant and, you know, being pregnant is no joke. Being pregnant and giving birth in this species is no joke. So unless you are honest about sex and clear about sex and think what it means to be from a sexed species, women are going to suffer. And now what we've got is this confusion where we pretend that what people identify as is what matters and not what they actually are. And that stops you from thinking about what do women need? And in some situations, what women need, for example, is no men around, none of them. Like, you know, it's too dangerous to have men there if women are undressing. It's too dangerous to allow women, men into women's prisons, to allow men into women's rape crisis shelters, to allow men into women's changing rooms. And also, um, because we're physically weaker, uh, we need our own sports. Otherwise, we can't have fair competition. So if you allow men to identify as women and come into those spaces, those facilities, those services, whatever, for women, you destroy women's rights because you take away women's privacy, women's safety, women's dignity and fair competition in sports. Yeah, so it destroys women's rights in that way, but it also stops you from just thinking, like thinking in a clear way about the two sexes and what we need. And that's for men as well, by the way. You know, men have their own specific needs. I'm a heterosexual woman with a husband and two sons. I've got five brothers and I love my dad too. You know, I care about men's rights too. Um, and we can't think about and talk about these things unless we start from the premise that we are the species we are, which is a species that is sexed, where sex can't change, and where the costs of reproduction are really unusually high for women. Like it may never have occurred to you 
that other mammals don't mostly go through anything like the same that human women go through, that women go through. Um, I mean, for, for happenstance reasons about our upright gait, uh, our pregnancies and births are far harder, far more painful, far more dangerous. And the babies are born, um, it's called neotenous, it means uh, very immature. It's not usual for mammals to give birth to creatures that, you know, can't feed themselves, can't hold on to something, can't walk for another year, you know, going to have to be carried around. So, so the burden that's placed by reproduction on female humans is far, far greater than on most other female mammals. And yet, do you ever hear anyone saying this? Like, it's one of the most notable and important facts about our species, without which you cannot build a world that's fit for humans. And yet we never talk about it because we've stopped talking about sex sensibly. Do you think there's this underlying agenda of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, shame of knowing that we have gender roles. I think shame's a really, really interesting word to raise, and I'm not, I'm not sure I even really know it's about the gender roles or what you meant by that, but if I can just riff on shame for a bit, and then maybe you can tell me if I have or haven't answered your question. I mean, it's, the, it's a fact that it is shame-inducing for women to be physically weaker than men, to be rapeable, and to be the sex that's marked as being a sex like for historical reasons where, you know, men ran the world and that men tend to th not think about themselves as having a sex. They think about themselves as the, the default human and women as the other human, like, like, you know, men with some extra grow bag inside them that pops out a baby every now and then and maybe tits as well, you know, something like that. And, and that's actually shame inducing for a teenage girl because you were the same as boys basically with your clothes on. And then suddenly you've got the tits that men stare at on the street. You start to bleed every month. You, you know, your mom has to tell you to be careful what you wear, you know, to watch out when you go out and things like that, you know? So, so there's a lot of shame associated with being a teenage girl and there always has been. And now there's this, I think it's an illusory escape hatch, like a fake escape hatch of identifying as a boy. It's not that surprising when you offer teenage girls the chance to get out of the shame of being female um, that some of them identify as being a boy. I mean, I think loads of people that I was at school with in the 1980s might have done the same, but it just wasn't even an issue, like it wasn't even a suggestion. But now it's almost suggest sold. And I would say the other thing that's quite shameful is being physically weaker and being vulnerable to rape. That's shame inducing. Like, I don't like saying that women are physically weaker than men. I wish we weren't. And if I was a fairy, I'd wave my magic wand and make it not the case. It's just a fact that we are. And I think that there's a lot of um, hidden shame that people are trying to hide from themselves, uh, which leads them to lie to themselves and then lie to others. Like you'll see female athletes saying absolutely insane things like, I mean, Megan Rapinoe has said this, that she has no problem competing with transgender women. What she's talking about is competing with men. If she was that good, why is she not on the men's team? You know, it's just ridiculous. But I think it's quite shame-inducing to say, well, they're stronger than me, and I know that. Do you think that this is a, a type of mental illness? No, I don't really. I think it's more like a, a societally-induced, like a shared delusion would be a better way to say it. I think, oh, sorry, I, and if I can just say one more thing about shame before I move on, I think it can be quite shameful to be a teenage boy as well. Um. In a way, in one way that I think it always has been, which is that, you know, boys take longer to become men than women, young girls take to become women. 
and we don't, you know, we don't think highly of teenage boys. We think they're a nuisance and noisy and so on and so forth. But that's always been the case. The new thing, I think, is talking about toxic masculinity. And listen, there is such a thing as toxic masculinity. There definitely is. There's a way that men can be together that's absolutely toxic for society. There is also a toxic femininity. But when you go on and on and on about toxic masculinity, even if what women mean is some masculinity, some types of masculinity are toxic, I know from talking to my own children and to their friends that lots of boys internalize that. They think it's toxic to be a boy. And they think that, you know, it's like, it's like the way people talk about being white sometimes as if it's shameful. So, you know, we, we're creating an awful lot of unnecessary shame for teenagers. And then we're somehow surprised that they tell us they don't want to be what they are when we've made that thing shameful. I mean, gender dysphoria, which is the sensation of being um, really distressed, really uncomfortable with the physical fact of your next body or with your sexed attributes, or I don't know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a variable definition. That's no longer classified as a mental illness. But if you look at the severe version of it, I mean, obviously it is a mental illness because it's describing um, you know, real discomfort of a sort that actually interferes with your everyday life and that gives you false and harmful beliefs about yourself and your body. But the sort of mass suggestible way in which incredibly large numbers of teenagers and young people at university are now saying that they are not, you know, boring cishet types. So cis means not trans and het is short for heterosexual. Like, I mean, I think at liberal arts colleges in America, like 40% of people say they're not cishet. You know, they're queer or they're non-binary or they're something else. Like, you can't call that mental illness. That's too many people. That's a sort of somewhere between a fashion and, a, you know, a societal disruption. You know, it's, it's out there rather than in there, I think. On Twitter, for example, a lot of women, or, or shall I say, Girl. When I say girl, I just mean a young woman. Young, young girl and young woman. I don't, I'm not going to object to either. Uh, yeah. I see a lot of them wanting to be male. I mean, there's so many reasons for it. It isn't that surprising to want to opt out of being rapeable, to want to opt out of being the porn category. Like, I, I mean, I haven't said the word porn yet, but the way that porn has become ubiquitous and that the porn... Um, like ideal almost, like you see, you know, if you stand outside a girl's secondary school, you'll see girls who've had facial surgery of the sort that's been popularized by porn stars, you know, trap pouts and, um, you know, that, that, um, that look, like if you, can, if you can aspire to it, it's still not maybe very attractive, but if you're someone who just can't possibly aspire, aspire to it, like you just can't, you know, you're too, you know, you're overweight or you're spotty or you're just shy or you just think it's repulsive or indeed you're somebody who's going to be a lesbian when you age, when you grow up a bit and it's just all completely repulsive to you. Or it's just repulsive to you, by the way, because it is repulsive. Then, you know, it's very hard to just say, oh, well, I'm the sort of girl that existed in the 1970s, 1960s, 1980s. You're almost not a girl. And I think an under-recognised reason that so many girls identify as boys now is the popularity of fanfic sites where girls share stories about same-sex relationships between fictional characters or pop culture characters like you know korean boy band stars or whatever they're sexual relationships but if you read these stories <laughs> these boys are not very boyish and they're not very like gay men it's basically you know mills and boone romance novels written with two male characters 
And you see this as a sort of wish fulfillment of girls, that they're imagining themselves into a male role that's actually not very male. So I think they're being very deluded and they're deluding themselves. And then there is an equivalent for boys. You know, a, a boy who's shy, nervous, um, very online, um, confused about his sexuality, like there's a load of paths into it. I certainly haven't listed all of them. That boy may imagine that his life is more exciting or more interesting or easier if he was a girl, like that he'll get attention, you know, that the girl gets things bought for her. She's able to just be passive and, you know, dress nice and a man will look after her and so on. And, you know, the role of being the perfect, rich, successful, um, the person in charge of the relationship and all of that, like that's very intimidating if you're 15 and a boy, like it might seem easier to be the other side of it. Of course, the girls are looking at the boys and thinking that's easier. Like, I used to think we've got, our, we've got our kids very screwed up at the moment, actually, both sexes. Like, so much pressure on them and such rigid gender roles and, and such unpleasant ones as well, impacted by porn and, you know, by very unrealistic expectations of what you're going to be like. Like, everyone can be famous, everyone can be rich, everyone can be successful. You're a failure if you haven't managed these things by 18. Yeah, we're not doing much good for the mental health of our teenagers, that's for sure. How pervasive is it really? Do you think the media overplays it? The prevalence estimates until about 2015 were that one in 30,000 males and one in 100,000 females had what was regarded as gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria. These were unbelievably uncommon. So uncommon among teenage girls in particular that before 2010 or 2011, there was not a single paper in the whole of academia ever written about them having gender, gender dysphoria. And now they're the group who identify as trans. So it's really, there was, it's, it's sort of like really, it started to ramp up from about 2010, 2013, it speeded up. 2015 was like this inflection point and then wham. So, I mean, I live in a, you know, relatively liberal part of the UK and I know a school I could cycle to from my home. And I've just picked this school because I happen to have a friend who has a daughter there. And that child identified for a while as non-binary and then as a boy. Now she's just a teenager, a young teenager. And the parents were very unhappy with how the school handled it. So when they talked to the school, the school let slip that on their roles, 10% of the kids were marked as not their sex. And most of them were girls, I can guarantee you that. So probably approaching 20% of the girls in that you know, public school, state school, 20% of the girls did not identify as girls. They identified as non-binary or as boys. Sure. And I mean, okay, this is a relatively liberal city. It's not Brighton, which <laughs> Brighton's like our San Francisco. And... You know, so and then I'm told because I talk a lot to teachers and to head teachers organizations that it's really common in rural areas as well, because this is spread by the Internet. So, you know, nowhere safe from it. It used to be that the latest craze, whatever it was, whether it was mods or rockers or punk or whatever, you know, you got it in the big cities first. But now these things all come from America. They come from American West Coast in particular, and they're everywhere. They're in kids' phones. They're in their pockets, therefore, everywhere. And in fact, in some ways, worse in rural areas, because maybe there's less to do apart from your blooming phone. Africans tend to be more conservative for whatever reason. I don't know if you saw that documentary by Matt Walsh, What is a Woman? I did, yeah, yeah. And when he was in Africa, they just laughed at him. Yeah, I wouldn't hold on to that for very much longer. I mean, mm. you know, the, 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 the world is, is, if America sneezes, the world gets a cold now. Yeah. Like America is the sole cultural global exporter. And I mean, I'm Irish and Ireland is really significantly culturally more conservative than the UK. 
and it served us well many times, I mean, badly on occasion. But so, for example, when I was a child, I was still taught to read and write in the old fashioned way of sounding out letters, putting those letters together to make words, which, you know, is a tried and tested way of teaching children to read and write. And it works for most kids. My husband, who's two years older than me, is English. And he was taught by a trendy whole word method where they held up flashcards and, you know, you were to guess the word. And the result is, honestly, he's an extremely literate man. He's also a writer, but he will still sometimes guess long words and get completely the wrong word on the basis of just roughly the length of the first letter. And his spelling is appalling. So we just in Ireland, we were like, hmm, that sounds a bit modern and held off on it. And then by the time it had become clear, it was a completely mad experiment in the UK. We hadn't done it, so we just never did. And there's other examples like that. Unfortunately, in recent years, um, Ireland's political and uh, chattering classes have become very enamoured of the idea that we're more liberal and more forward looking and just generally all around better than the UK. Mm. And therefore, we jump on every craze faster even than in the UK. So I would have said, you know, we've got this genuinely quite a small C conservative country that's run by absolute like liberals of the sort who could you know, fit right in in the maddest parts of San Francisco. So, yeah, don't you think that you're safe just because your culture is a small C conservative culture? You know, these ideas are peddled around the world mm. by the UN, by um, the World Economic Forum, by all these global um, NGOs and charities which make often make their uh, donations um, dependent on you buying into Western exported ideas. Like, you know, you'll have to put your pronouns in your email signature if you want to get some money from the WEF, I'm sure, at this point. I mean, I did a, I was at a conference last year and there was a video call with some um, lesbian refugee women in a camp in, I think, Kenya. I mean, these are women who have suffered, you know, horrific abuse. Um, and they're in their own, they're in an own, their own section of the refugee camp for their own safety, and they're still abused horribly by the people running the camp. And they were talking to this feminist conference about what they were suffering, and they had their, they had their pronouns in their bios. Because, you know, they talk to other NGOs as well, and they know that it goes down well. I very much doubt they have any idea what they're saying here. And I was told by somebody who researches um, Fafafine in Samoa, so these are men who are very femi effeminate and who sleep with other men. And the, as Samoan people and culture, they don't regard these as men, as gay men, because they have no category of gay men. They regard them as a third gender, a third category, which is not women, but it's sort of male people who are allowed to sleep with men and who can wear dresses and put flowers in their hair and whatever. Anyway, they now get quite a lot of money, all the groups that represent Fafafine from international trans bodies and NGOs and foundations and things. But these foundations are always asking them, where are the trans men? Like, where are the women who are pretending that they're men? And there isn't really such a category. I mean, there is formally, but there aren't any of them. So they're forever trying to find some trans men to show to the bloody foreigners to get their money from them. <laughs> so this is how cultural contagion happens from America to the rest of us. I love I love that phrase cultural contagion I think that's very apt yeah I mean it's a it's not a new phrase I didn't make it up there's a, a fair amount of research on how uh, in particular um, mental conditions and the ways that we think about ourselves are in part culturally constructed or socially constructed like much more than you think like people think mm. when you say this that what you're saying is that mental conditions aren't real like that you're saying oh you know it's real to have cancer it's fake to have depression absolutely not saying that there's something that looks like depression in every culture 
but the details of how it's felt, the precise symptoms do vary from culture to culture. So I, I can't remember where, but I was reading about this and it said that in some cultures, like people will say about depression that you have a peppery feeling in your stomach. So that's not something a depressed person here feels. But if you go, if, you, if, if you're in a culture, you, you experience a package and it's recognizably depression, you know, mm. but it's, uh, it's got these characteristics that we don't have. And I'm sure the other way around is true. And the details of how PTSD feels are really quite culturally specific. That's a disorder that came out of the Vietnam War and the Vietnam vets. And if you look back further, um, shell shock, which was what the people in the, the, the soldiers returning from the First World War experienced, was not a syndrome that had been experienced before and isn't mostly experienced anymore. So these mental conditions are very much culturally mediated and they can spread. And they spread via the media, via medical associations, um, but traditionally those two. And now they spread on the internet and they spread via NGOs. And they go from America to the rest of the world because America is the, is the global cultural hegemon. I mean, they go via Hollywood as well, I should say. Like Hollywood suggests sells the notion of non-binary identities to the rest of the world. It's doing it right now. Um, it does it in its children's programs as well. What role then do parents play? I mean, parents are the most important people for children. But you can't keep your children entirely um, separate from the culture. And in particular, you can't keep um, teenagers separate from the culture. Because the way, and I mean, this is, this is known from looking at lots of different societies, including like quite, um, you know, tribal groups and so on. The way that we grow up is you know you believe your child your parents implicitly when you're little and you love them even if they're awful like that's the hardest thing about being a really abused or neglected child is you love the person who's abusing you or neglecting you so you think your parents are right about everything it's delightful by the way there's a wonderful bit where they think that you're just the sun moon and stars but of course if they always thought that they'd never be able to grow up and they'd never be able to break away from you and they'd never be able to form relationships and and in particular if your culture changes they'll be stuck in the past because they'll be stuck with your ideas so there's this really specific developmental phase in adolescence where they specifically denigrate what their parents say and specifically pick up their ideas from each other. It's desperately irritating. I've been through this, you know, being told idiotic things by your children, giving them really clear, you know, short, succinct and unarguable reasons why what they're saying is silly. And yet, you know, it's like, oh, but such and such in school told me. So you can't keep them away from the culture. You know, I mean, if parents want to fix this, yes, we've got to protect and defend our own children, but we've actually got to fix the culture too. One of the things that I worry about is playing on their turf. So in other words, they keep using phrases like transitioning and transgender. Do you think it's a good idea to outright reject such terms? That's very clever of you. Yes, I do. It's very hard. Um, and I think you can do it a bit too much in that you can turn off people who are wavering. Like if you've got somebody, you know, who fundamentally has thought all oh, of this is a good idea and it's the next civil rights movement and trans kids are like gay kids or whatever, and they've started to have doubts, like they've seen something about medicalizing kids very young, or they've seen something about uh, males competing in female sports and they think that might be unfair, but they're just on the edge. And if you go hard in on that person and say, look, a trans woman is a man, there's no such thing as a trans kid. You know, transition is a made up term for giving people cross sex hormones and trying to disguise their 
uh, secondary sex characteristics, and by the way, it's very unhealthy, that person kind of retreats, you know, <laughs> so you kind of, I think sometimes you have to be gentle. But I do think more and more that we can't win this playing on their turf. Like they're the ones who set it all out as, you know, trans rights are human rights. Like that's vacuous. Of course, trans rights are human rights. Trans people are human. So of course, women's rights are human rights. Men's rights are human rights. Children's rights are human rights. But they've got all these catchphrases and those things. Have you ever come across the expression thought terminating cliche? No. Okay. It's what a great is- expression. Uh, thought terminating cliche. It was, it was um, coined by a man called Robert J. Lifton, who wrote about communist China and the way in which the communist party kept control of the masses in the communist era. And his, I mean, he had many great insights, but this particular one is about the way, you know, the police aren't everywhere. The thought police aren't everywhere. They mostly don't know what you're saying or doing. So the way it works is the thought police has to be in your head, in your own head. You have to not even think the things that aren't allowed. And the way that you do that is you learn when a line of thinking might lead somewhere dangerous and you learn a cliche that stops the thought. So an example might be somebody is sitting at home and they come across something online about Leah Thomas, who is this man who's six foot four, who suddenly identified as a woman and went from being a fairly mediocre swimmer in college athletics in America to being absolutely far faster than any of the women. It's just so obviously unfair, especially if you see a picture of Leah Thomas, it just brings home to you, this is a man. And somebody sees something like that and it causes a crack of doubt. But the fact is that they're, you know, they're a liberal, they're a signed up Democrat, all their friends think that trans rights are human rights and trans women are women. You know, they don't want to be a Republican. Um, They don't want to be cast out. They have friends who've transitioned their child. And so a thought, a thought stopping cliche or a thought terminating cliche will pop up and go, trans women are women, full stop, no debate. And then they go back to safe ground. And so, you know, for those of us, they're practically indoctrinated. I mean, this is a culture technique using thought stopping cliches. For those of us who are trying to open somebody like that's eyes, there's a lot of things that you have to do. You have to lower the cost as much as you can of speaking the truth. You have to use the right techniques, like just just drop a little thought in like, oh, did you see that thing about Leah Thomas? It did seem a bit unfair to me and then move on. But you can't do it if you use just their language. Like you can't say, did you see that trans woman? And of course, trans women are women. And, you know, I would, of course, use their pronouns. And I respect everybody's gender identities. But I did wonder why that trans woman was in the women's race, because they're in the women's race because they're women, is what you've just said. You have to be able to say why a trans woman shouldn't be in the women's race. And that's because the trans woman is a man. So we can't use their words. Just on that exact thought that you are talking about now, why don't women take a stand? The the athletes, why do they compete? I don't know if you're a sporty, but um, as an athlete's lifespan is not very long. And if you fall out with your coach or your team or your sponsor, your entire career is over. Like the social control on athletes is probably at least as great as in any other profession. Um, you know, and in particular for female athletes, there's not very much money in women's sport compared with men's. I saw a statistic here in the UK recently that 11,000 men make their living from sport and 1,000 women. 
So most women, even women that are good, like that are winning races at a national level or at a local level, and um, they're not making any money from it and it's costing them money. But they may have a sponsor. They may have somebody who pays for their gear, pays for their travel, you know, gets them to do some after dinner speaking or whatever. If you're at all controversial, you will lose that. And the controversy, it doesn't matter whether it's good, bad or indifferent, you will just lose that. And then, you know, the unfairness in sport is so great that even a small number of trans women are really grotesquely unfair. Like, you know, you know in, in, in running, like it's 10% advantage to be male. And I mean, you know, races are won and lost on 0.1%. In other sports, it can be up to 50%. So it's a really big advantage to be male. But there might not be a man when you turn up to the meet. Hopefully there won't be. Hopefully there won't be a man on the other team. Hopefully you won't race against a man. Hopefully you won't be playing against a man. So it makes sense to just kind of wait and see and only worry about it if it happens to you. Economists call this sort of situation um, a tragedy of the commons or a common, uh, what is it called, common, um, common action pro problem, a coordinated action problem. Like the fact is each individual woman is probably better off hoping that somebody else will sort this out. And I just have to say one more thing, which is this isn't a problem of female athletes, it's a problem of male athletes. Like why don't you ask why don't the males say we're not competing again until the men stop trying to intrude on women's sports? Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it, that'd be fairer. Like it's very, very unfair to expect women to solve a problem that's exclusively caused by men. Like it's exclusively mm. suffered by women, but it's exclusively caused by men. I think the better thing to do is um, to attack the uh, governing bodies. And that's best done by people who aren't currently competing. Now, there are some current athletes who are speaking out. There's some very brave young women in, in the American college system. Because, you know, they're not only having to compete against people like Leah Thomas, they're having to change with him. Like the, the girls who are competing with Leah Thomas have to change in the same changing rooms as him. And, you know, I, d I didn't know this until relatively recently I found out um, the swimsuits that you use for competitive swimming are very rigid, tight things that make you more aerodynamic in the water. Is it aerodynamic if it's in water? You know what I mean? Like you go through the water more smoothly. And they take ages to put on. You have to strip completely naked and put them on and then sort of bounce and wriggle and wriggle and bounce and they come up like an inch at a time and it takes you minutes and tens of minutes to get into them all the while you're naked and bouncing up and down and you're doing this several times if you're at a competition because you compete in other you do your warm-up in a different costume and you might do several races in the day so you're in and out of the changing room over and over again stripping completely naked over and over again there are no cubicles there's no possibility of doing it behind a towel and there's this bloke doing the same, an entirely physiologically normal bloke, watching you do it, doing it himself in the room with you. The girls tried to complain to the, um, the sports administrators and University of Pennsylvania, which is where he was competing. And they said to the girls, we will send you for counseling. Uh, if you say anything, you'll be dropped from the team. Um, you will never get another job. Like Riley Gaines, who has spoken about this, she's not at UPenn, she, she's at a different university and she competed against him. Her university said to her, if you speak about this in your name, you will never get onto a postgraduate course. You'll be blacklisted across the entire university system. So you're asking an awful lot of women in the system right now. And the only reason the young ones like the swimmers have spoken up is they're basically experiencing sexual assault. I'm not saying that that's what Leah Thomas intends. I'm saying it's how they experience it. And nobody is doing anything about it. And when they complain, they're told to shut up. Mm. where do you see this leading i mean with the sports thing it's going to get fixed because it's so bad um 
like literally nobody is going to watch women's sports if there are some men in it because it's pointless mm. like laurel hubbard made it to the olympics i don't know if you saw him he's a new zealander bloke in his mid-40s had a really serious um, arm injury a couple of years ago like really serious nearly ended his weightlifting career uh, very out of shape fat guy with you know no muscle tone and he was competing in 2019 i think it was in the pacific games and the thing is the world's strongest women compete in the pacific games they're the um the pacific islanders and so the, the you're at your very best between about 18 and 25. so the world's strongest women are the teenagers from samoa and the other pacific islands and and laurel hubbard beat them all this out of out of shape guy in his 40s and then he went to um the olympics for new zealand like nobody will watch this this is just a joke like it's like something out of bloody south park honestly so it's so bad that I don't think you can run women's competitions like this. And there's no way I'd sponsor it. I mean, there's just no way I would sponsor this because I wouldn't want my brand associated with such a joke. So I think that stops it in women's sports. I mean, if you're asking more generally, I think we've got the fight of our generation on our hands, actually. Because, you know, although we've talked about this as if it's a women's rights issue and to some extent as about keeping children safe, it's actually an issue of reality and, um, proper policy making, evidence, academic discourse, you know, standards in public life, and what, you know, post-enlightenment values, actually. It's, so, you know, it, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that this reaches the level of a threat to our democracy. Like, if you can't say something very fundamental about human beings and fundamental to looking after children, looking after women, looking after gay people, you know, stopping crimes, um, all sorts of things like that. If you can't do that, medicine, by the way, we haven't talked about that. You can't do medicine if you don't think about what sex people are. If you can't do that, then you can't run a country properly. You can't run a company properly. You can't run public spaces properly. You can't keep people safe. So yeah, the fact that this has all got so far is, um, yeah, really it's a generation defining threat to civilized values, frankly. Let me be more specific. Uh what long-term effect do you have? Uh, do you have what long-term repercussions do you think this has on, say, kids? Because you, you you hear about transitioning, and I also get very angry when I don't hear about surgeons taking responsibility for this. God, there are two different questions. Let's take this. Let's take the surgeons one first. It's shocking, isn't it? Really, really shocking that people who take an oath not to do any harm, um, you know, who are taught to look at evidence, to think about the costs as well as the benefits of an operation, to inform patients properly, et cetera, and so on, are doing such horrific things. I mean, honestly, I think it's all horrific because there is no evidence, even for adults, that the treatments they're offering will help. I mean, there, there is evidence that, um, you know, a very, very tiny number among them, the cohort who might have transitioned some decades ago, are not made much worse and might be made a little bit better, but that's as good as it gets. And now they're doing no gatekeeping at all. They're just you know, offering people whatever they want if they walk in the door of Planned Parenthood in America. But as for kids, they've never offer, offered these sorts of surgeries and drugs to kids before in the whole history of humanity. There's no evidence base whatsoever. And there's really very good reason to think that this is a mad thing to do with children. Like children are still in development. Their bodies are still developing. Their identities are still developing. Like I can hardly remember what I was like at 16, let alone I'm sure I wanted mad things that I don't want now. 
I mean, loads and loads of people say at 16 they don't want children, only to decide in their 30s that they do. So that's just one example. So I mean, really, very obviously, this should not be happening in the medical profession. But the trouble is, if you read history of medicine books, it happens a lot. Doctors are very prone to doing this. They're very prone to getting mad ideas in their head, getting all enthusiastic about it, you know, letting those spread. Um, there's a sort of, like I said, I talked about the sort of contagious nature of ideas within a society. There's contagious natures within of ideas within the medical system. So doctors present things, patients get suggested that that's what they have. They come back in, they tell the doctors, the doctors hear what they think they want to hear. And in this cycle, they create a new diagnosis. And that's happened many times since the medical profession became semi-formalized a few centuries ago. Like, I don't know if you've heard about um, lobotomies, you'll have heard of lobotomies. There was never an evidence base for lobotomies, never. They were a grotesque human rights abuse. There were people arguing against them almost as soon as they were suggested and started being done. And yet the guy who invented them got the Nobel Prize. And then if you go back a bit further, hysteria, that's an entirely invented illness which was created by a particular French doctor called Charcot, who basically kind of suggest sold hysteria to women who responded by doing what he thought they should do, which is throw fits and faint and you know so on and so forth. And they got brought into his um, asylum. And when he died, hysteria vanished. And now we've got the internet and we've got the unprecedented global cultural weight of America and so American, well, they're called culture-bound syndromes, these, um, these mental syndromes that come in one time and place. America's culture-bound syndromes now go global. So I think the best way to understand the transgender phenomenon is to think of it as an American culture-bound syndrome that has gone beyond America's borders, that has been spread by international organizations, you know, multinational companies, NGOs, foundations, but above all by the internet. So that's sort of answering your surgeon's question. I can't actually remember what your other question was. Well, I was asking about the long-term repercussions of kids and teenagers yeah, yeah. going through this. I mean, people often think that if you, if a particular child escapes being medicalized, they've escaped it entirely. And I think that's much too early to say that. Like, obviously, the worst affected kids are the ones who have been subjected to you know, entirely evidence-free and probably very harmful medical procedures. And we don't know how many of them will regret what they've done because we've never done anything like this en masse to kids. I mean, it's hard to regret something when you can't go back from it. Human beings are very, very good at persuading themselves that whatever they can't change is for the best. Like we all do that. We couldn't live if we didn't do that. So I think there are kids who would have been much better off if they hadn't done any of this, but they still won't use the word regret. But there are kids I know already who are regretting. It's why I wrote my book when I met my first detransitioners. It was absolutely horrific what had happened to them. That sterilized at age 21. And no healthier, no happier, no better, still with eating disorders, still with whatever brought them to the clinic in the first place. So there's those kids, but I mean, more broadly than that, you know, to me, transgenderism isn't only about transitioning some kids, it's about teaching all children lies. So if you look at the syllabus in the places where this has gone furthest, so for example, in some Canadian states or in some West Coast states in America, California in particular, they're literally teaching children total lies about what it is to be a human being. Like they're telling them sex is a spectrum, that doctors looked at your bodies and guessed what sex you were when you were a baby. Like guessed, they use that word guesswork, that sort of thing. 
when you're older, you'll be able to say what your sex is, which might be male, female or something else. I mean, there's a school I, I went into recently and they had a poster of all the flags for all the gender identities. And I don't know, like maybe a few dozen. And the cis one, cis meaning not trans, so like most of us, was pale grey and white. Like it was the most boring flag. Everything else was really colourful. Like they literally suggest selling trans identification to kids. And then the other thing that they're doing is they're telling children that your parents don't get any of this. Your parents are basic, boring, bigoted, old fashioned. It's your job to teach your parents. If your parents don't go along with them, you cut them off. Like they're, they're intruding in, in the family life. And we shouldn't be intruding in families except in rare circumstances. Like most parents are the people who care most about their child. You know, when my children were small, I said to them, if anyone ever tells you something or asks you to do something and then says, don't tell your parents, I guarantee you that person means you harm. So, you know, that was absolutely drilled into my children. And now you've got schools in many American states, like California, again, is a big example, transitioning children at school and telling all the children to keep this a secret from the child's parents. Like they're, they're, they're destroying families like this. And when parents find out they're distraught, and yet then they're placed as bigots, they're told the social services will come in, doctors won't talk to them, threat of having their children taken away from them, their children turned against them. You know, this is actually really, really evil. And it's being done to the whole generation in places like California. I mean, you've probably have heard that there's a mental health crisis among young people. And this isn't all of it, but it's part of it. A friend of mine said to me a few days ago, when you're talking about adults, Jim, why don't you just live and let live? Yeah, and people often say that, and it's often where people start from. And I mean, I think I'd sort of give two different sorts of answers to that. Like when it comes to adults, we don't say when it comes to adults, why don't you let non-diabetics take insulin? Why don't you let people chop off their legs? Uh, why don't you let people shit on the street? Like actually, <laughs> there are reasons why people can't do what they want. And, you know, lots of the people who are doing the medical stuff in particular, they go to the doctor and they're asking the doctor a question. They're genuinely asking, why do I feel the way I am? Uh, will this thing help me? And so it's not just a question of giving them what they want as if they're customers, they're medical patients. And if the facts are, we can do this thing to you, it probably won't make you feel any better and may well make you feel worse. And by the way, it'll shorten your life, turn you into a medical patient for the rest of your life. Then I think you're mis-selling what you're doing to say the very least, it's medical malpractice. But the second thing is other people have rights too. If I was ever going to get something tattooed on my face, it would be that other people have rights too. So when a man identifies as a woman, like if he's doing that in his own home, he can do what he likes, I don't care. I also don't care if he goes out on the street as long as he's decent wearing anything at all. I just don't care. When he starts coming into the toilets that I'm trying to use or the changing room I'm trying to use, or he thinks his female identification entitles him to take a job running a rape crisis center, or I have to call him she when I can see bloody well he's a man, then it's not live and let live. I want him to live and let live. Like, why don't they do it? I want to go around my life with my rights, some of which require me to be able to see which sex other people are and to keep the men out of the places where only women are supposed to be. And they're the ones who are intruding on me. It's the wrong way around. Is this transgender narrative something we should be debating? Because if we are debating it, are we not therefore legitimizing it? 
Mm, I, I mean, I think it's gone way past the point at which we could have squashed it by not debating it. Like that would have been about 50 years ago. Like the very first time a man ever said to a sports administrator, I feel like a woman, I want to compete as a woman, they should have said, not a chance, bugger off, there's the men's category. And that should have been that. It shouldn't have got any further. There was no point in debating that. Unfortunately, lots of them do allow men in now, in particular the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, which is the nearest we've got to a global regulator in sports. It allows men into the women's category, so sadly we have to debate it. And the same, you know, there's a rape crisis centre in Scotland that has a man who calls himself a woman running it. And he says that women who have difficulty with that need to reframe their trauma and get re-educated. His words, not mine. So we have to debate it. It's happening. It's here. We let it in the door. We have to debate it out. The trouble is they won't let us. They won't debate it. There's the Stonewall, which is like the equivalent of um, the HRC or GLAAD in America here in the UK, until relatively recently, its slogan was um, trans women or women, no debate. I have never managed to talk to somebody in an official capacity at all, ever, in six years that I've been trying to do so about gender self-ID, literally never. And then it's coming to the point here in the UK because we're fighting back on it so hard that they're starting to have to try to defend themselves. Like they won't come on a panel with me or anything like that, but they're having to have interviews and so on. And they perform so terribly badly. Chap called Ian Anderson, who is the chair of Stonewall, he did an interview with a very good journalist called Beth Rigby a couple of weeks ago on telly here. He made the biggest fool of himself I've ever seen someone make over half an hour. You know, he spluttered, his glasses steamed up. He, he couldn't answer any of the questions she asked. He just kept giving idiotic, you know, non-answers. And she, she, um, she said something about sport, was it fair? And he went into this bluster he'd obviously pre-prepared on the subject of how, you know, case by case and no blanket rules and different sports looking and hormone levels, blah, blah, blah. And then behind him on the screen, they put up this enormous picture of Leah Thomas, like this vast, obvious bloke with two much smaller obvious women beside him and she said is this fair and he didn't know what to say and he spluttered and steamed up and so on and then did a bit more sort of like just bullshitting and she said yeah but if you were one of these women would you think this was fair and he couldn't answer so that's why they don't debate because they make total fools of themselves when they do the only reason all this happens is because they've been allowed to do it in the dark once you bring it into the light you can see what madness it is that they're talking why do you think though that debate is so heavily suppressed and stifled because they're so bad at it because they have no good arguments i mean well okay that's part of the reason that, that's not the entire reason i don't think that's i think that's the practical reason but well, I don't okay think... hang on hang on hang on youtube will take down your video for example or give you a strike or something along those lines I mean, you know, I've had a video taken down. My first interview with Jordan Peterson was taken down for unspecified hate speech. Um, we think that it was because we called Ellen Page or Elliot Page a woman, which she is. Um, I don't think I don't think it's because they're so bad at debating is the main reason. But I'll tell you, any time you try and do a debate on this topic, like I have seen probably a couple of dozen people have reached out to me at this point from all over the world who have wanted to set up debates specifically. Like some, somebody sane and sensible who has a podcast on something like science or politics or sport or something, they look at this and they go, huh, that's weird. They're saying that men can be women now. How odd. They look around, they find me, they find my book, they see I used to work at The Economist, they reckon I'm not insane. They send me an email saying, hi, Helen, I'd love to do a debate on this. Would you be ready? Every single time I have said yes. 
They asked Judy Bindel, they asked Kathleen Stock, Abigail Schreier. There's probably a couple of dozen people they ask. We always say yes, always. And then they'll come back after a while and say they couldn't find a single person to oppose us. Like either what people say is, um, you know, I don't debate Nazis. I don't co-platform bigots. Um, she's a fascist. Um, you know, so I think partly it's because they know that they lose. When they speak, they lose. But I think it's also because um, something we haven't talked about is the way that this whole movement is just really intensely linguistic. Um, there is no sense in which Leah Thomas is a woman, except that he says he's a woman. There's nothing else about him that's a woman. You know, entirely physiologically normal man. He hasn't even had surgery of any sort. Like maybe he's on hormones, I don't know. But anyway, taking oestrogen does not turn a woman, a man into a woman. That's ridiculous. So he's obviously a man, and that's something that you can see in a single glance. So the only sense in which he's a woman is that he says he's a woman and other people go along with that. So it's an entirely linguistic movement. And in order to make him a woman, you have to shut up the people who say, no, he's a man. So that's their no debate. That's the other bit of their no debate is, you know, as every time I call Leah Thomas a man and point out that he's a man, I'm destroying the fiction that he's a woman. And so they won't talk to me. They try to silence me. They complain about me to anyone I work for. You know, they complain about people carrying my book and so on, because all my speech utterances destroy the, the sort of fake reality they're trying to make with their speech utterances. It's obviously then ideological more than anything else. Uh, it, it's so it, it's a, it's a neo-religion. This is the easiest way to understand this is that it is a new and particularly toxic religion that has managed to persuade governments and other people that it's not a religion, that it's a social justice movement. And because of that, it's not treated like other religions. Like if you, if you, if you think, about, think about a religion, I don't know if you're religious, but think about a religion that you really have nothing to do with, that you have no allegiance to whatsoever. You know, so maybe it's going to have reincarnation or, a, you know, if we, if we go back, like let's think of an old religion, like Norse or Egyptian religion or something. You know, there's a ship sailing through the sky and that's the sun. And, you know, we have to water the ground with blood to make the spring come or something like that. These are obviously just totally non-factual beliefs. And yet people believed them together and it's a religion. So this is similar. You've got a man, he can turn himself into a woman by saying he's a woman. And that, you know, he, he has some internal essence that's a bit like the way that the host, in, according to Catholics, becomes the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like it's still, it's still clearly a bit of bread, but anyway, it's now also the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So it's a religion, but we don't treat it like it's a religion because if we treated it was like it was a religion, that'd be fine. Like it's fine if Leah Thomas thinks he's a woman. I don't, and I don't want to say it, and I don't want to act as if it either. So if we were all allowed to just say to them, oh God, that's very odd that you believe that, but fine. You know, our friends of all sorts of religions, freedom of belief and all that. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, observe Rosh Hashanah. I don't go and take the sacrament with Catholics. I don't believe in reincarnation and I don't believe that men can be women. And I'm not going to say any of those things and I'm not going to act as if I do. And you absolutely cannot impose your religion on me. Instead, we've got as a religion that's not treated like it's a religion. So they've managed to semi-turn it into a state religion by calling it social justice. And now suddenly it's as if we all live under the Ayatollah or something and we all have to go along with absolutely bizarre dictates of a belief system that is harmful to us and it's a belief system we don't agree with but too bad if we don't believe it we're apparently bigots so bigot means infidel helen how do we push back then here we are <laughs> we talk like this you said 
you said don't use their words. I would not have talked like this two years ago. It's been practicing and talking to other people and talking to people like you. I've honed my thinking. I've said things that are obviously true, but people think they're not allowed to say it. Like I remember the first time I saw somebody on, um, it was on UK television. It was a woman called Kelly J. Keane, AKA Posey Parker. She was invited on a news program. And this is maybe about four years ago, I think. And she said something about trans women, um, you know, shouldn't be in women's spaces or something. And the presenter said to her, what do you have against trans women? And she said, I have nothing against them. I just don't think they're women. And I saw her say this. She's never been invited on telly since because that's heresy. She's just spoken. But I remember seeing her saying this live and going, <gasps> I couldn't believe she'd said it. Like, I didn't know you were allowed to say that, you know. And now here I am calling Leah Thomas he and saying he's a man and saying there's no sense in which he's a woman except that he says he's a woman and so on. So I make it easier for other people to say it. And then they say it and make it easier for other people to say it. Like the way you push back against a state religion is by committing heresy. I mean, the belief that sex is a binary and immutable characteristic is obviously not something that you can in any way combine with the belief that sex can change. Like they're just entirely inimical to each other, those two beliefs. So as long as somebody says a person's sex can change, a person's a man or a woman according to what they say they are, and by the way, that person is going to act in ways that impact on you according to whether they think they're a man or a woman, there's no compromising with that. Like, we have to keep all men out of women's sports. We have to keep all men out of women's rape crisis shelters, changing rooms, etc. Not even one. As soon as one man comes in, it's a mixed-sex space, and women need single-sex spaces. So there's no compromise on that. The difficulty is that by now there are so many facts on the ground. There are so many people who think it's their right and not just their right, but like their social justice right, that they're almost better people for intruding upon other people's single sex spaces and services and facilities. And they've been told that they can, like there's no denying it. Governments have told them they can, companies have told them they can, charities, everybody, everybody who says trans women are women is saying to men, if you say you're a woman, you're entitled to go into women's spaces and any woman who complains will be kicked out, called a bigot, gone after at her workplace and so on. I mean, I think those men should have more self-respect and should have a bit, a bit of thought for what it's like to be a woman. But you know what? They have been told it's their right. So pushing back against that's the extraordinarily painful thing. I don't think there's any possible compromise between people who say sex is immutable and people who say that sex isn't immutable because they're just distinct positions. The difficulty is clawing back things, boundaries, resetting boundaries that have already been breached means that you say to people who think that it's their right to come in that they can't. And when you think what some of those people did because they thought it was their right, they got castrated because they thought it was their right. Like there are, there are lots and lots of people around the world right now who destroyed their own fertility and health and made themselves permanent medical patients and in some cases have permanent pain because these operations are not very good, they're very risky operations. And they did that because they were explicitly told that if they did that, they could go into the other sex's spaces. And now I'm saying, no, you can't. There's no way back for those people. That's the difficulty. The doctor has sold them something the doctors should never have sold them. That really worries me, that mm. there are these people who, you know, for whom the way back is impossible. At the risk of repeating yourself, what policies do you think could be very beneficial as we go forward? I mean, 
I work for an organization called Sex Matterism. This is our logo. That's why I have a mug that has an X chromosome on it. <laughs> it's our symbol. Everyone has an X chromosome. In by, case the you way, don't know that. by the way, Elon yes. Musk will appreciate that because he loves the letter X. Oh, well, when we uh, when when he changed to his much uglier and far more basic looking ex, uh, Maya Forstatter, my colleague who founded the company, uh, founded Sex Matters, I mean, founded the, the, the organization. <laughs> she tweeted out, ours, the original and best, and our lovely little ex <laughs> in blue. <laughs> anyway, um, you may not know this, but it's not possible to, to be born without an X chromosome. Like, that's not compatible with life. You can be born without a Y chromosome. Every woman is. Um which is why we've got X. It's not, it's not because it's a feminist organization. Everybody has one of these, male and female. Um, so we are, our approach is specifically about the law. So we think that you start by fixing the law and then you, if necessary, take legal action or you look at policies. But unless you have in law a clear definition of what sex is and you protect sex, which is what everybody, everywhere in the, in the um, developed world did until very recently in many, many developing countries too. That's where you have to start. It has to be clear that when we say man, woman, boy, girl, male, female, mother, father, you know, sister, brother, son, daughter, any of those words. So there's more. I could, I could go on with aunts and uncles, but I'll stop now. Um, when we say those words, we mean sex. And then a lot of other things follow because there's already a lot of laws, including a lot of international laws that say things about sex. So just to pick one example, you know, the UN rights of the child says it's the right of every child to have their birth registered. And that they don't just say birth registered, they say birth registered with specific information, including the name of the mother. And the reason for that is that that is the only instant in a child's life when there is absolutely unarguably an adult who's responsible for that child. And it's always the mother. It's always, always, always been a female person right through the history of humanity and way back into all of mammals and way back further than that too. So in that law is embedded an understanding that mothers are female, that mothers are women. And then separately, lots of countries have messed up their law about sex. So they simultaneously sign up to this, to the UN convention that says the rights of the child and so on. And simultaneously, somewhere else, they break their law by saying, you can change your birth certificate to say whatever sex you like. We have gender self-ID here. Use whichever spaces you want. So laws at the moment are a total muddle. There's laws that were written anything more than about 20 years ago and going back decades and sometimes longer that make it clear that we all understand what male and female are and that in some situations you treat male and female people differently. Um, and by the way, I'm going to say something about that. Um, we often think that it's discriminatory to treat people differently. And that's what the word means. So sex discrimination is treating a woman worse than a man or a man worse than a woman. But sometimes you have to discriminate to treat people fairly. So to be fair to women, for example, you have to have separate sports. Like if you, if you treat men and women the same, you're discriminating against women. In, in fact, there's just gonna be no women's sports. So that, that was just a bit of a sidebar basically laws now generally say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex except when you should and when you should it's because the sexes are different that women get pregnant women get raped men commit most of the crime that sort of thing so if we fix the laws that's the first thing and any country that has brought in gender self-id has to bring it back out again and that's not going to be easy thankfully we have not done so here in the uk we have in my home country ireland unfortunately with the result that we now have, you know, horrific rapists in women's jails and so on. You're not even allowed to report on it. 
But that's concerning that you're not allowed to report on it. Well, I mean, it's a mixture of two things and then one that could come along that's worse. One is that, um, you know, the whole of the Irish media, except that a few very right-wing new um, media organisations, is completely captured. And you can't, you know, they just won't report on things that don't fit the narrative. So the fact that there's a there's a bloke who um, got himself a gender recognition certificate saying he was a woman in a women's jail in Ireland and, you know, he's committed sexual assault, he threatened to rape and kill his mother, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a very vicious sex criminal. Um, he identified as a woman and they put him in the women's jail. That's not mentioned in any Irish paper. And if he is, if he is ever by accident mentioned, of course, they say she. So they just describe him as a woman. Like they say, like a woman rapist. And you're like, well, how, how many of those are there? Um, so it's partly that, and it's partly because the language messes it all up. Like you made the point, you said, can we use their language? Well, if we use their language, we lose. When we call that man a woman, well, of course a woman is in the women's jail. And then the worst thing that might happen is Ireland is thinking of a hate speech law. Um, it's been paused because of pushback. But this hate, hate speech law will criminalise with really large penalties and very vague definitions a, a wide range of speech with the presumption that that speech is harmful and hateful, including anything about people's gender identities. So pretty much everything I've said to you would fall foul of it in Irish law if this law passes. So just saying that man is a man would be a hateful act. I'm right ready to go to Ireland and say some of these things and get arrested, by the way, because I think, you know, when these things happen, they're authoritarian to such an extent that that's what you've got to do. Here in South Africa, they are talking about uh, building the third bathroom, if you know what I mean, um, in certain yeah. public spaces. Now, we obviously need to take a stand against that. Well, I don't know. I mean... You know, there's sort of a set of policies that people tend to say when they come to this new and they haven't been thinking about it very long. And like they often say, like your friend said to you, what's wrong with adults? Live and let live. It's like what I want to live and let live too. Or they'll say, um, but if they have surgery. And the thing is, we can't make rights conditional on people getting sterilised. That's a human rights abuse. And anyway, I can't tell if a man's been sterilised. I don't go around the place looking at people's genitals. I can tell you're a man from here, from this bit of you. I don't need to look any lower. So how would I know whether a man has been sterilised if he comes into the women's changing room? But a third thing that people often say is, what about a third space? And I do think actually we're going to have to have some third spaces going forward because I think we've created anomalous human beings who are going to be very uncomfortable and challenged wherever they go otherwise. So if you are an obvious, obviously male, but you're really presenting as a woman, you're doing your very best. So you're a trans woman, you know, you've grown your hair, you're wearing whatever, female appearances you're really doing your best you've got breast implants but you're clearly male well where the hell do you go and use what facilities do you use i mean you can use the men's i think men might be more forgiving than you think you can't use the women's because we can see that you're a man and you're quite scary but i think that having a third facility for somebody like that like individual unisex options wherever possible is not a bad idea the problem is they mostly don't want to they want the validation of using the women's like they feel that they're being shunted off into a, a separate space. Too bad. You know, if, if they're that uncomfortable using the men's and we will not allow them to use the women's, then we have to have a third space. I don't want them to have to stay home. I don't want them pushed out of public life. Mm. I was at a friend's house recently. Uh, he's gay. 
and he was showing me a show that he loves watching, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Do you know? Do you know it? I think RuPaul has an unacknowledged role in all of this by normalizing, uh, you know, uh, drag. And I mean, you know, the show is harmless. It's just about glamour. It's just about men dressing up. It's not. I, mean, I don't like it, but I'm not the target audience. It's fine. But it brought it brought this sort of hyper femininity what? of men into people's living rooms. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, when I was younger, there were drag queens. I don't remember ever thinking that it was anything more than a show. It was never something I was into, but I never, I never thought that the men dressing as women were actually wanting to be women. No, and they weren't either. I mean, it was a gay subculture. So I have a lot of gay friends. I have a gay son and I have a lot of gay friends, both male and female. And, you know, the gay men that I know, some of them really love drag and they think it's the wittiest, most subversive commentary on sex roles and you know, on, on what it means to be, you know, they're, they feel they're subverting what it means to be a man or to be a woman and like more power to them. Personally, I think it's tedious. And some gay men think that it's, uh, it's, it's that it's kind of unpleasant the way that everybody thinks that's all gay men now. Like if you're just a gay man who's either, you know, quite butch in your appearance or quite masculine, or you're just a very ordinary person like everybody else, you don't care much about how you dress and how you look and you, it just so happens that you want to have your, your sexual and romantic relationships with a, another man. Like, this is just alien to you too. It's as alien as it is to me. And I mean, I, 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 they've got this thing now, I don't know if they have it in South Africa, um, Drag Queen Story Hour, where they get drag queens in to read to kids in libraries and schools. Absolutely bonkers in every respect. I mean, it's meant to be all about diversity. But there's a big agenda behind it because they come in and they call the drag queen she and a woman. So straight off, what they're telling the kids is somebody who's an obvious man, but who's got long hair and you know, has got padded tits and is wearing a dress. That's a woman. So they're trying to teach the children before the children even know there's such a thing as a trans woman, that trans women are women. But also the books they read are these horrific books about you know gender non-binary and how Teddy becomes a girl by taking the bow out of his, of his bow tie and puts it in his hair and nonsense like this. So it's propaganda, it's pure and simple propaganda. But another thing that it does is I think it, it tells little children that what it is to be a gay man is to be hyper, hyper sissy feminine dolled up. And I don't think that's massively helpful for the proto-gay kids. Like if you're a young gay boy, and you already think, like, why am I a bit different than other boys? You know, why, you know, why do people call me faggot or something like that in the playground? And then in comes a drag queen and you're told that's what a gay man is or that that's what LGBT is. Like, I don't think it's very attractive. Just think the whole thing is misconceived and actually quite sinister on occasion. Well, where I sort of was going with that is the same gay friend said to me, I really hate all this trans stuff. It's making me look bad oh god i hear that more and more from the lgb it, it, and it does make you look bad by the way and it makes us look bad it makes women look bad because a lot of feminists so-called feminists are all transed up the wazoo right really badly so i'm afraid that you know anyone who has been for the last years or decades sort of silently saying to themselves you know x has gone too far like gay rights have gone too far feminism has gone too far blah, 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 has gone too far, is looking at trans and going, look, are you, do you believe me yet? It's gone too far. 
and they make us all look bad. They make anyone who has ever thought of themselves as progressive look very, very bad because they're on the same side as lunacy that sterilizes children and destroys women's rights and is absolutely anti-science and clearly mad. And I'm afraid that the longer it goes on, the worse the backlash. And I don't want a backlash against trans people because I think that'll be ugly. I really don't want a backlash against women's rights, against gay people's rights, against everybody's rights. I don't want to go back to a conservative 1950s, men must look like this, women must look like that, you know, sex role type stuff. So, I mean, they're, they're, these people are playing with fire and I wish they would stop because all of us are going to get blown up by it. If you could give me a parting thought, what would it be? Lots of things are complicated, but this isn't. There really are two sexes. You know, what you've always thought you knew is correct. And you can just say that. And policy needs to depend on that. And it really does need to depend on it. It's not marginal. It's actually at the center of human existence. So of course, policies need to follow that. It's that simple. This isn't hard. You've just been scared off it. So what you're saying is when when a mother gives birth and uh, the, the doctor holds up the baby and has a look between the legs and says, you have a bouncing baby boy, it's correct. Right, yeah. Like very, very, very occasionally in quite sad cases, there are really unusual medical conditions. Trust me, you will find out if that's the case <laughs> for your child. I've literally never met someone in person with one of those conditions. It's fine. You're right. There are two sexes. It's the same for humans as it is for all the other animals. Same way that you know which one is the cow and which is the bull. It's the same for humans. Don't let that mean that you have to stick to old fashioned sex roles. You can be a girly boy. You can be a boyish girl. It's fine. Your sex does not change. Helen, how can I follow you? And of course, tell me more about your book. Right. So on Twitter, I am at hjoycegender. And I have a substack. Well, it's not a substack, but anyway, it's a newsletter at thehelenjoyce.com. Um, and my book is called Trans. It was originally published with the subtitle When Ideology Meets Reality, and it's recently been reissued as Gender Identity and the New Battle for Women's Rights. But anyway, Helen Joyce Trans, there's one book with that title, and it's me. I hope people read it. I hope they keep reading it. I hope they keep talking to me about it. And uh, thank you for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.